Uh, back at it. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I'm Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell, fresh off vacation, fresh off a visit to Prairie Dunes. Colby, how was your, uh, how was your week? Uh, it's been a great week. Had fun in Colorado. Had a blast at Prairie Dunes. The only downside was coming home to an 87-degree house with a broken air conditioner Wednesday evening when we got back uh. from beautiful 70-degree Breckenridge. So that was kind of a bummer, but got to pray, play uh, Prairie Dunes yesterday, so that pretty much wiped away any negativity that I had going from the night before. Did you get your AC fixed? We did get the AC fixed. It was a, a cheap part that had gone out. Uh, so somebody came out and fixed it yesterday. So we are good. I'm sitting in a nice, cool room now. So it did okay. get fixed. Only had to sleep in the heat one night. Well, that's good, man. That that makes for a long night. That's happened to me before. There's there's nothing worse than having to try to go to sleep with your fans blowing just hot air on you the whole time. So glad you got that fixed. Uh, yeah, I came back from the Dominican Republic, and I, supposedly it was cool when I was gone. And then I come back, and it's near 100 degrees with like 80% humidity. So you brought the heat back with you as well. So yeah, we left Breckenridge Wednesday morning. And when we left, because we, we left at like seven, it was like 58 degrees, something like that. And then the next morning, I drove up to Prairie Dunes. And it was 104 degrees yesterday in Hutchinson, Kansas. It was so, so beyond hot. It was uh, very much a shock to my system after being in the nice mountain weather for a few days. Mm hmm. Well, we got U.S. Open to talk about. We got the top 50 receivers in the history of college football to discuss. But first, let's hear from Chris's University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. I'm not talking as loudly as I usually do because I'm at the uh, KOCO5 studios today. I am at work. I usually record at home. But got uh, the, the beauty, Colby, about taping at home is uh, – or taping at work, rather, is – I've got four TVs here by the sports desk. I've got the, the golf is on, of course. I've got England versus Scotland in the Euro 2020. I've got uh, an old school OU game on Fox Sports. So I got, I got the four TV set up here. Do you, I need to get the, the Peacock streaming on here too so I can get multiple golf screens. Yeah, you do. You need to have some featured holes or some featured groups or something up there. That is a good setup, though. I uh, Sometimes I'll get a couple of screens going. Tomorrow and Sunday, I'll probably have two screens going for the U.S. Open. Just the one today, though, for the Thursday and Friday rounds. Yep. Uh, the course is playing much more tough today in the second round. But I wanted to talk to you, Colby. Um, Matthew Wolf, who has taken two months off. I mean, he, he finished runner-up in the U.S. Open a year ago. Nearly won the PGA as well a year ago. He's been kind of searching uh he, he took two months off to kind of just recalibrate there's been a lot of rumors a lot of discussion what was going on with him was it injury related was it was it mental health related and uh he he fires off a one of the craziest rounds you'll ever see he only had five pars and shoots one under par he had a bunch of birdies bogeys and, and or worse but uh really played well colby this course fits him obviously with his length but he was he got DQ'd from the Masters for signing an incorrect scorecard. He withdrew after one round after shooting 83. He was lost, and we were kind of wondering what was going on with him. But, man, he, he really played well in his first round. Yeah, he did. He, uh, I mean, it was a weird round. Eight birdies, a couple doubles, a bunch of bogeys on the card. Uh, but, it, I mean, it ended up being a one-under round in the opening round of the U.S. Open, and it's just good to see him back out there. And it is, it's a good thing that he's opening up a little bit because uh, not a lot of people know what he's gone through the last, I'd say, probably 10 months. Uh, he, he just wasn't in a very good place. And I think we're to a point 
now in society where we can say, okay, you know, let's, let's kind of drift away from that old school mentality of suck it up and get out there. You know, he had the self-awareness to realize that if he just tried to suck it up and get out there, it was going to get worse. It was going to get worse for him. It was going to get worse for his sponsors. It was going to get worse for the tournaments. He just, he knew that he needed to take a step away. Uh, I think just the fame and everything, the success, it, it all came so fast and so heavy I just think that it was very overwhelming and, you know, everyone handles it differently. And I'm glad that he took the time away that he needed because I want to see Matthew Wolf out there, but I want to see Matthew Wolf out there at his best. He doesn't need to be out there just to be out there. Uh, So I'm glad that he took some time away. I'm glad he had a good round yesterday. Do do I think he's going to win the U S open this week? No, I don't. He hasn't played in a while. It's a really tough golf course and, you know, golfers kind of know that when you haven't been playing a lot, you're going to have some good rounds, but it's going to be really hard to string four great rounds together, which is what you have to do to win a U.S. Open. So I don't think he'll, he'll be able to string four great rounds together. But as he showed yesterday, there's no reason why he can't still have a good week, and it's certainly good to have him back out there. Yeah, it really is. And this is kind of just how new this this life is for him. He, he spoke after his round and even even leading up to his first round a lot about it. And he didn't even know he could take time off. Like he, he didn't even know that was an option for a while. And so he needed to do it. And he finally did and took, took two months off. And he spoke a lot about, you know, mental health. And he said, you know, quote, I think the hardest part is people, unless you're actually a playing professional, you don't know the emotions that come along with it and how much you want to please everyone, play for your fans. And on top of that, make money. It's a living. In college golf, you shoot 78, you go back and your coach would pay for your food and you would be, just be chilling because you run a full ride scholarship, but you come out here, you miss five cuts in a row. You're like, damn, I haven't made a paycheck. And it's just hard. It's really hard. So that that's something, you know, we don't see this side of professional golf, you and I Colby and, and the fans. We just think these guys just fly around private jets, man. They're living the life. They're, they're, they're getting paid to play a, a sport. They get to play all these cool courses. Well, you don't see the, all the downtime by yourself in a hotel room after you shoot 77. You don't see all the hours that you have to spend in order to play at this level. And I think he just went through a natural kind of learning curve because let's face it, he, he won in his first, what, like his second event on tour. He, he won, a, he won an event and got his card and he almost wins a major twice last year. Just it had come very fast for him. And at age 21, he hasn't experienced failure at a real level in his life. He's been nothing but successful. You know, as a freshman, he was freshman golfer of the year. The list goes on and on. So I just think it's a natural thing that, that we all go through when we're 21, 22 years old, when we get out in the real world, just his is a lot more magnified because he's playing for millions of dollars on the PGA Tour. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think people do realize how lonely it is to be a professional athlete in an individual sport. You know, you play in the NBA, the NFL, the MLB, you, you're constantly around your teammates. You're rooming with them on the road. You're always in the locker room. You're at practice every day. There's this camaraderie, the, this brotherhood, but that doesn't exist in individual sports. It's just you. You know, it's you alone in the hotel. Maybe some of these guys share with their caddy. Most probably don't. I mean, it's, it's very lonely to be uh, an individual professional athlete. Um, and some guys, like I said, handle it better than others. And we still, you know, these guys are so young and we put so much on professional athletes at such a young, young age. I mean, until three weeks ago, Carson, Matt Wolf was the defending national champion in, in collegiate golf. He's still very, 
very young. Uh, I'm just, I'm so glad he's back out there. And I, I like every time a professional athlete opens up about some mental health issues that they're dealing with, it makes it that much easier for the next person to seek the help and the support that they need and do what they need to make sure that they're right to be at their best, whether that's playing golf or being an accountant, you know, it it just, every time somebody with a platform like what Matthew Wolf has uh, steps up and talks about something like this, it matters and it makes a different, uh, a difference. So I'm glad that he's doing that. And I'm glad to have him back. Well, and he's just he's just an outgoing dude. He he's a very outgoing, gregarious guy, and it's it's a lonely existence. I think he enjoys being around his friends from college and and just life on the road's different for for a guy with his personality. And uh, you know, he I thought he has great perspective too. I mean, he's always been a really good on the microphone and he he made a great point too. He's like, Look, I'm not asking for for sympathy or and I'm certainly not suggesting my mental the mental things I'm going through is worse than what other people who aren't as fortunate as I am go through. He just, you, you just asked me a question, what's going on with me. This is what's going on with me. So he wasn't even sitting there trying to say, you know, like, Oh, woe is me. You know, I, my mental health problems are so much worse than just anyone else. He, he has great perspective on it too. So it was great to see him back out there, Colby. And listen to this. There have been, this is from Justin Ray on Twitter. There have been more than 15,000 U.S. Open rounds played the last 40 years. Only one round has had eight-plus birdies and multiple double bogeys or worse. And that's Matthew Wolf yesterday in his first round. Just a, a circus, circus scorecard. Shapes everywhere. Yeah, it was a really weird round for Wolf. It was, I mean, he, he held a couple of long ones. Uh, you know, he really played uh, – pretty well i thought i mean obviously you make some big numbers but guy hasn't played competitive golf in a while big numbers are to be expected uh i know that very very personally i made five doubles yesterday at prairie dunes golf is hard carson it's a very hard game (laughs) i can attest to that that. that's for sure sure. it was a weird round but it was a good round uh he's playing pretty well what did hovland end up at three yesterday is that right he he was three over yeah yeah, and he's just teeing off right now. His tee time, as we're talking, is uh, he's standing on the tee box. Yeah, like I think Wolf to me fits U.S. Opens better than Victor in that. You know, Wolf is basically mini Deshambo. He just he hits it a mile, and with his club head speed that he's able to generate, he can hit his wedges out of the rough uh, just with the same precision that that a Bryson can. And I just think the one thing I didn't really like Victor coming into this week because. Victor needs to learn when to throttle back a little bit. I mean, the guy just fires at every pin and you can rack up a lot of birdies every single week on the PGA tour doing that. And he's, he's great at it, but in the U S open with, with how, how firm the greens are with how diabolical of spots there are around the greens. I just think he's a little too aggressive when it comes to a U.S. open setup. So I was, I was much more bullish. Um, I wouldn't say on Matthew Wolf because we haven't seen him in two months, but I just think overall at U.S. Opens, I worry about that a little bit with, with Victor Hovland. Yeah, I, I could see some of that for sure. I just think Hovland's at a point uh, right now where I just don't think he's ready to win a major championship yet. I mean, it takes some time for most guys. You have to learn. You have to learn course setups at different majors. You know, at Augusta, th- that course is so, so difficult to learn all the intricacies. It just takes a while. At U.S. Opens, it takes a while to figure out how to play a U.S. Open with the deep rough and the firm, fast conditions. That just takes some time. British Open is very unique in its own way. Uh, the PGA, you know, it bounces around every year. Kiowa this year was a remarkably unique golf 
course. I think it just takes some time, and I don't think he's quite ready to win a major championship yet. I do think that he will uh, will hoist a major championship trophy at some point. I just don't think it'll be in the next couple of years. He's got to grow some more. Uh, also, I mean, he could stand to win a PGA Tour event in the U.S., at some point he's won in Puerto Rico uh, and he won at Mayacoba, which is in Cancun. So uh, <laughs> I think that he could probably stand to win. I don't know, maybe like the Honda classic or maybe even the farmers or something like that at Tory. win one of those and kind of build your way up to winning a major. Yeah. I, I want to see what he does at the, the, the British open as well. I, I'm curious to see how he does in that type of course. Cause we've never really seen him. Uh, and or, or Wolf for that matter, either on a on a pure pure links course. So I'm I'm curious to see what that would look like too. I mean, uh, you know, the Europeans tend to do really well in the Open, but you know, Victor's practically grown up in America since coming over for college. So that'll be that'll be interesting to see if he, how he does on that format as well. But who was your pick? Who was your pick coming in? And and just what what's your overall takeaway so far through the U.S. Open through one and a half rounds? Uh, my, I really kind of had three at the top of my list, and they were three of pretty much everybody's favorites, Kepka, Rom, and DeChambeau. Uh, at the end of the day, I did end up picking Rom as my winner. He's played great. He's three under through two rounds. The guys in front of him aren't guys that can really win the tournament. I mean, R Richard Bland leads at five under. I don't think there's anybody on the planet right now uh, that thinks Richard Bland's going to win the tournament, uh, and that, that I could probably even throw Richard Bland into that category. He probably doesn't think that he's going to win the tournament. That's uh, Dick Bland. Yeah, yeah. Dick Bland. Uh, yeah, Dick Bland there at five under. I, he's not going to win the tournament. So, Rom at three under, I think, is in great shape. Kepka's two under, just started his second round. He's in really good shape. Uh, Xander Schauffele could sneak up and win it. And I still think Bryson is very much in the golf tournament. He's at even par. Like I said, Bland is at five, but I don't think he's going to win it. I don't think either of the guys at four are guys that are going to win it. Louis, Russell Henley. Uh, you know, Louis the guy who shows up at every major. He's going to contend, and then he's not going to win. But people are going to freak out, and everybody's going to be like, this is Louis' time. This is Louis' time. I just don't think it is. I'll believe it when I see it. Louis the king of finishing top five at majors and not winning. So I'd say I still like my ROM pick a lot. Kepka and Schauffele, uh, another couple of good ones. And then Bryson, he's lurking right there at even par. Also, I have a sneaky hot take, Carson. Um, I, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. You tell me. I was glad that the USGA didn't pair Brooks and Bryson because I don't want them paired together on Thursday and Friday, whenever it's forced, I want it to be organic and have them paired together on the weekend for a couple mm. of reasons. One, you can play twosomes on the weekend. So you don't have to throw a third guy into the circus because whoever's the third guy that you throw into the circus, I don't think that that's totally fair to him. And the other reason is, you know, it would just be head to head, mono e mono on the weekend. And if it happened on Sunday, it would be with a golf tournament on the line. You know, not just, oh, let's get ourselves in position to play well on the weekend. No, no, no. I'm talking, we've got four holes left and these guys are tied standing on the tee box. That's what I want. So I'm kind of glad they didn't force the pairing because uh, I'm really hoping that we see it on the weekend. See, at first, I was just, to me, it was just another example. The PGA Tour is just no fun. They don't like fun, they don't like to promote their sport. And it was pure boredom that they didn't do it. But I'm, I'm kind of with you now that I've, I've thought more about it because all this does is just prolong it. It gives it more life because it became a story that supposedly Bryson's agent was asked about it, yada, yada. So you're right. If they are paired on the weekend, it just makes it that much better. Because let's face it, Colby, if they were paired on Thursday, they would have like just not talked to each other on the first tee and then we would have watched every single shot of theirs instead of the rest of the tournament and nothing really would have happened. And it would have been a lot of hype about nothing. So I, I'm kind of with you. 
but um, Bryson was my pick. And just for all the reasons I've, I've said about just, he just, I mean, he won, he won the U S open at Wingfoot, a place that's not supposed to suit his style by six shots. And this course is definitely fits his style of play. So I, I think he's going to go really low in the weekend. I, I would still, I'd still think it would come down to him and Rom and, and Kepka, your, your three guys. But to me also, Colby Kepka just, he's just a machine. I mean, he's played in 28 majors. He's finished in the top 10 and 11 of them. It just, the, I've never seen an athlete, maybe Shaq. I think Shaq, I, this is the most random comparison that I just came up with. I think Brooks is Shaq where he doesn't care about the regular season week to week. He'll play himself into shape during the regular season and he'll turn it on in the playoffs when the championships on the line. That's basically what Brooks does. He, he missed the cut at just one of the worst fields you'll ever see last week at the Palmetto and boom, he's on, he's in the top five after the first round. The guy is just a, a major machine and specifically a U.S. open machine. So I have a theory about Brooks Kepka, and I'd have to go back a little further to see if this held true in like 17, 18, 19. Um, but I think that Brooks might, he's, he likes to play the week before majors, but I think he misses the cut on purpose the week before majors so that he doesn't have to be there until Sunday night. I, I just, you watch him the week before majors. I really think he tries to focus hard on his ball striking stuff and really work on his swing and work on some things he needs to work on. But I don't think he really is taking his time and grinding over putts. I think he's just kind of trying to hit stuff up next to the hole and tap it in and move on. I really don't think he's trying to make it to Sunday night the week before a major. And it's almost kind of brilliant. You know, you get out of there on Friday afternoon, you head from South Carolina to California, it gives you another couple of days to get adjusted, to get out to the golf course. Um, I, I think that he, that's my conspiracy theory is that Brooks Kepka misses cuts on purpose the week before majors so that he doesn't have to stick around until Sunday night. Well, I think, I think he won in Phoenix before the masters. Did he not? Uh, Phoenix is usually played late January, early uh, February. You're right. He missed, he won Phoenix and then missed the next three cuts, then finished T seven at the masters <laughs> to your uh, point. Finished T seven at the masters last year. He missed. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. That was, that was the fall masters. Yeah. Oh, the fall masters. Gotcha. Okay. So he finished T two at the concession in, uh, 2021 and then missed the cut of the masters this year. Yeah, he had, the, he had the knee injury, remember? He That's tried to right. Yep. Yeah. That's right. So we'll blame it on that. He missed the cut the week before Kiowa, and then he finished – I think he finished runner-up at Kiowa. I know he was right there. Yeah, he missed the cut at the Byron Nelson, then finished T2 at the PGA. Yeah, the guy's he, just he, absurd. He, he misses the cut in just terrible fields the week before majors. I mean, yeah. the Byron Nelson was okay, but it was still pretty low. And the Palmetto last week was a disaster of a weak field, and he missed the cut at both of those. So I think my theory holds some water. Yep. So it'll be fun to watch this weekend. Hopefully Matthew Wolf and Victor Hovland, hopefully Hovland can make the cut and those two guys can, can make a run at it. Uh, a lot of golf to be played, but it uh, should be a fun weekend at the US Open. I just love primetime golf. I, I can't wait to watch more tonight and then more into the weekend. Uh, Colby, a couple more items I want to discuss. The uh, top 50 greatest wide receivers of the past 50 years is out on ESPN from uh, Bill Connolly wrote the article. Our friend, uh, friend of the pod, Zach McGinty, sent this our way. And uh, I thought it was an interesting list. I think you have it in front of you, but I guess uh, Justin Blackman comes in at number four. I thought he got proper amount of respect as he, you know, the way his NFL career, I'm always worried about this list of people just forgetting that he probably was the most dominant receiver to ever play. He gets this due respect at number four. James Washington, somewhat surprising at 16. 
and Hartley Dykes at 18, but an ominous omission was uh, Rashawn Woods didn't make the top 50, which is pretty crazy considering he's still the, the all-time leader at Oklahoma State in uh, receiving yards and, again, played in a less miles offense. Pretty, pretty staggering he wasn't on the list. Yeah, very staggering. He, I mean, he far and away deserved to be on the list. I think they wanted to put uh, some guys from way back in the day on here. Like even, I mean, Steve Largent made the list. Steve Largent, Tulsa, go Hurricane. Uh, I mean, he made the list at number 48. Uh, Randy Moss at number one. I love Randy Moss so much. It's just, it, it's this debate. It's like, it's a small sample size with Randy Moss. He wasn't around nearly as long, but his stats are just They're ridiculous. 174 catches for 3,529 yards and 54 touchdowns. He also had a rushing touchdown. He was so, so good. Those poor kids who were trying to defend him in whatever conference Marshall plays in had no chance. I think he's the greatest receiver of all time, and I don't think it's particularly close. Uh, But I think that, you know, you could have some debate amongst the top five. The top five from from five to one are Desmond Howard, Justin Blackman, Devontae Smith, Larry Fitzgerald, and Randy Moss. I think that you could kind of shift those around in any order you wanted to, but I do think that that's a pretty good top five. Cause after that you get to Crabtree at six. He's not as good as any of those five Johnny Rogers. I don't know a ton about played in the seventies at Nebraska, Tim Brown uh, from Notre Dame at number eight, Calvin Johnson from Georgia tech. Uh, number nine, Georgia Tech wasn't full on triple option when he was there. He put up some pretty good numbers. And then Keyshawn Johnson from USC at number 10 uh, career stats for Keyshawn Johnson, 16 touchdowns in his career for Keyshawn. Everybody huh. else on this list, 28, 12, 12, touchdowns, 12 touchdowns for Tim Brown at Notre Dame. But he had the uh, return game and he had rushing touchdowns as well. Johnny Rogers, 27 touchdowns. Crabtree had 41, 32 for Howard. 40 for Blackman, 46 for Smith, 34 for Fitz, and then 54 for Randy Moss. Uh, so, yeah, how about Keyshawn Johnson up there with his 16 touchdowns in the top 10? Did you just say Randy Moss had 54 touchdowns? Yeah, not a typo. In one season? Uh, it says he was. It says 96-97 here. Did he play two years? On yeah, his he, reference yeah, page. Okay, well, on his reference page, it only says one year. That, that okay, can't be right. The reason being, Carson, 1996 came technically at the FCS level. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's gotcha. the reasoning. The shifting okay. around in, uh, in divisions is the reason. Yeah, see, like, I just think Randy being number one has a lot more to do with his professional career. Because if his name was, was uh, Joe Smith and he had the numbers he had at the FCS level one year and then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then Marshall the next, there's no chance in hell he's number one, but he's Randy Moss. And I, I understand why. And he was absolutely electric at, at Marshall. But again, he played at Marshall, didn't exactly play the best competition. I would argue Blackman deserves the number one spot. Just his, his numbers are better than Fitzgerald's. Devontae Smith's numbers are slightly better than Blackman's. But I don't think anyone would argue. Well, some people might argue he was as dominant, but I just, I don't. Devontae Smith was great and his numbers speak for themselves. But he was running wide open a bunch playing on that Alabama offense. He wasn't running through tackles like Blackman and just the sheer physical force that Blackman was. I think that gives him a slight edge for me. I like Crabtree should be right behind Blackman. I mean, his, his career numbers are, are very close to Blackman's as well. He was just as dominant at the Big 12 level. Of course, played in a much more, you know, pass-friendly offense at Tech, but his numbers still weren't as good as Blackman's despite playing in that offense. But uh, interesting list. You know, James Washington getting some credit too at 16. 
Uh, I got to give, I got to correct myself here. Washington surpassed Rashawn Woods on the all-time receiving list yardage wise, but Rashawn is still number one all-time in, in receptions. He had 40 more than Blackman. He's also number one in touchdown catches. He had two more than Blackman and uh, make that three more than James Washington, who's third. So again, Rashawn Woods playing in a less miles offense where they had power eye, Sean Willis, fullback dives is just remarkable. I know he played a long time and the, the longevity probably put his numbers up there above some of those guys. Uh, but man, he just, he never is going to get his proper due just because of how many great receivers have come after him at Oklahoma State. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and part of the reason I think too is, you know, he battled some injuries in the NFL and he, he just never became a star at that level. I mean, he was there for a little bit, uh, but he never became a star at that level. And I do think that that factors in uh, to people's considerations. I really do. Um, Larry Fitzgerald, obviously he's number two. Great in the NFL. Randy Moss, number one, greatest receiver ever in the NFL. Uh, don't know about Devontae Smith yet at three, and then you kind of get down to some other guys. So I definitely think that that plays a role. Rashawn Woods gets massively overlooked. He was so, so dominant. Uh, I mean, he's still running wide open in that. I believe it was the 0-2 Bedlam game. He's still running wide open. The 16-13 the to 13 game, we all know what happened there. It's just he is incredibly undervalued in Oklahoma State history, and the reason is – you know, like you said, so many greats have come since him. I mean, since Rashawn Woods, we've had Des Bryant, we've had a Darius Bowman, we've had Justin Blackman, we've had James Washington, and we've had Tylen Wallace. That's all since Rashawn Woods, and Rashawn wasn't <laughs> that long ago. So he gets undervalued just because we, we all have a little recency bias and remember how good all those guys have been since him. I forgot about Des. How is Des not on this list? Uh, Des is not on this list because he told the truth about having dinner with Barry Sanders. Yeah, the NCAA screwed him, huh? Once again. Yeah. I mean, I promise that's 110% the reason he's not on this list. It has to be because they'll probably just look at his junior year like, oh, he only had 300 yards and four touchdowns and only played in three games. Must have got hurt. Sorry. No, that's not what happened. But man, Des's junior year, it's in the Pantheon 1480 receiving, 19 touchdowns. I believe – let's see if I can return game here. Uh, I guess he didn't return a punt that year. It was, he, he had 300 yards in punt return yardage, no no touchdowns. But 19 receiving touchdowns is just that's, – that's among the – that's in the pantheon of all-time great seasons. Dez was – to me, like, this is what's so great about receiver arguments. Like, Blackman's still number one by far for me in school history. But just – if you're going on just – who you'd want to, if you're picking sides, if you're in a, a pickup game, who do you want on your side at receiver after Blackman goes? I think Dez is the pick. Just how, how, just much of a physical force he was. I think I would take him over Tywin, James, and Rashawn and Hartley before my time. The old timers will tell you that he was just as physically dominant as Dez. It just, I wasn't old enough to see it, but I, I'd probably take Dez after, after Blackman. Uh, yeah. Do you remember whenever Dez raced a bullet? Yes, I do remember that. That was like I mean, back when Twitter was first becoming a thing. Is that not so awesome? I, I so wish that that would have happened in like the full on social media era. I know it was, uh, it was awesome. Did he win? I don't even remember the results. Uh, I can't remember. He, I, if I had to guess, I would say he probably didn't win because bullets a horse, but <laughs> I actually don't know. Well, I didn't know if Bullet was, you know, taking it easy on Dez, you know, doing a little little trot instead of the, the full-on here comes Bullet, you know. Because back, back in my day, Colby, when I was a little kid, Bullet used to come out like 
like an actual like Kentucky Derby horse. Like it would it would come out flying like all the way down past midfield. Now he just kind of when they score a touchdown, he just kind of trots around in a circle, goes out to the 50 and turns around. Back in the day, this dude would come out of there like like the Kentucky Derby. It was incredible to watch when you were a little kid. Now he just kind of he just kind of chills. Maybe maybe he chilled for Des. I'll have to go back and look at it. Yeah, he still runs. I didn't go this past year uh, to the games, but the year before before the game, they would still have the band split and have Bullet come right down the middle pregame, and Bullet would still get after it pretty good in that. But, yeah, after he scores a touchdown, it's pretty much uh, they take it easy. And, and, you know, it's always different Bullets in different years and stuff, and, and some Bullets stick around for several years. Uh, there was a horse a few years ago that got spooked coming out after a touchdown and I can't remember when it was but kind of started running up the field and kind of got close to the refs and the opposing <laughs> kickoff unit and stuff it was oh little- I remember that yeah I remember bull- that okay I just watched the video Des lost by about five to ten yards but it was a it was a decent race this is actually a pistols firing video I don't know how hey. I don't know how uh PFB got their hands on this back in the day but yeah he he lost the race but he he, he looked like he was moving pretty quick so uh, fun discussion there. Uh, before we get out here, Colby, uh, Marshall Scott and I talked about the uh, the Bryce Williams news. I wanted to get uh, get your thoughts on that. Yes, sir. That was good news on vacation. I was so happy that he came back. I, I thought that there were two really big targets for Mike Boynton this offseason, and they were both named Bryce, and he got them both. Bryce Thompson, <laughs> Bryce Williams, both in Stillwater next year. It, Oklahoma State basketball is just in such an exciting place right now. It, it was already heading that way, and then you got the big boost from Cade, which kind of puts you on that elevated level. But, I mean, there's even more high-level recruits that are taking official visits to Oklahoma State. It, it's, it's becoming a destination for guys. I mean, Boynton's really trying to turn it back into a basketball school, and Bryce Williams is going to play a huge role next year for Oklahoma State. So I'm stoked that he's back, and I can't wait to see what the dynamic is for Oklahoma State offensively with Avery Anderson, Bryce Thompson, Bryce Williams, uh, you know, some of those other guys, the Boone twins. I know I'm forgetting guys. Donovan Williams, I'm sure, will make his way back into the mold. Chris Harris, both those guys were out with injuries last year. There's just so so much talent. Matthew Alexander Moncrief, so much talent on that OSU team. It's just, you, you know, Cade leaves, and Cade was great. I loved having Cade here. You know, three minutes left in the game, giving the ball, get out of the way, and he'll go win it, and he did several times. But this team's not going to miss a beat without him because they are still loaded with talent. Yeah, I mean, I think it was crucial. All the points you made is, is well put, and just – you just you need some you need some guys with some experience. You can't just turn over your roster every single year. I know that's the way college basketball is moving, but getting him back, Avery Anderson, that's huge because these transfers are going to take some time to meld together. And I mentioned that with with Marshall, but with Bryce Thompson, they have some. You know, last year was really kind of the first year that Boynton had actual depth. Now they have like some of the best depth in the Big Twelve. I mean, you put their roster up against anybody's depth wise, maybe not you know, like a Baylor or, you know, some of the better teams in the conference, but basketball season is going to be exciting. You know, Mike Boynton's already tweeting out, you know, get your season tickets. It's going to be full, full capacity. So I, I'm ready for, for Gallagher to get rowdy again. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. I'll definitely be up at some games next year. This uh, past season, I went to two games, Kansas in Stillwater and Bedlam in Norman. They were both just maybe the two best games of the year. Uh, so that was awesome. So looking forward to basketball next year. It's going to be, it's going to be a blast. Yep. Can't wait. Colby. Good to be back with you. Hopefully uh, you don't make any more double bogeys this weekend or whenever you play golf next, but uh, good to be back with you, man. And we'll, we'll catch up next week. Good to be back. Closing thought, Austin Eckrote, T3 right now on the Corn Ferry, 10 under through two rounds. Austin Eckrote, bring it home. Go Pokes.
I mean, he's going to be on the PGA Tour really, really soon. So that, that'll be fun to watch. U.S. Open, enjoy it, everybody. We'll be back with you next week.